I was giving you a background for the minor prophet, and Amy was taking a text from that minor prophet offering a homily. We enjoyed that so much. We've continued it this fall. Um, I've been trying to find um, something, a, a tangent related to the text, and offer you what we call the more you know, helping to broaden the understanding of the text, and uh, Amy's offering a homily. Um, that comes to an end today, and next week we go back to full sermons, and you know how hard it's going to be for me to find more to say to you, um, but I'm going to give it my best shot, okay, next week. But today, this brief word on the death of Jesus. All true stories end in death. Now, I'm sorry to begin this beautiful day with such a downer, but it's true. Now, I don't remember the conversation, but many years ago, I was talking with my friend, Dr. John Ballinger. It was something I had read or a movie I had seen, and I was lamenting that the story ended with the death of the protagonist, and John threw the sobering truth over any happily ever after hope that I might have harbored. Matter-of-factly, he just said, Russ, all true stories end in death. Well, I knew it was true, but John's tone arrested me. I will never forget the impact of hearing those words like that. Friday of this past week, this room was filled with one of the largest crowds we have ever had here. People lined the walls. Friends had discovered the lifeless body of their 26-year-old son two weeks ago. They still do not have an official cause of his natural death. Our boys had played rec sports together years ago, and though it had been some time since we had been closely connected with this family, they needed a place, and they needed pastors. Of course, we said yes, but I wrestled with that moment. How do you offer a eulogy for such an occasion? How do you offer hope in the face of such tragedy? Some would consider my choice ironic. You would not because you know me. But I turn to what has become some of my favorite biblical wisdom, offering hope through the brutal honesty of the book of Ecclesiastes, who says, I saw the vanity that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to them all. For no one can anticipate the time of disaster when it suddenly falls upon them. How is this hope, you might ask? And I explained in that eulogy my belief that this cynical wisdom is preferable to the often-cited platitudes. He's in a better place. God needed another angel. There's none of that easy religion in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I continued, if the old preacher were here today, I think he might say to us, do not call this the will of God. This is just life. And life is hard. We all die. Even though he wrote a long time before Jesus lived, his words point us to Jesus who said, It is not the will of my Father in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. Surely God is grieving with us. The old preacher of Ecclesiastes just knew the reality of the uncertainty of life. Now it is the sure hope of the people of faith that old cynic among them, that despite the inevitable tragedies that this life continues to dish out, God is with us. 
I believe that realism is better than platitudes and false hope every day of the week, maybe twice on Sundays. We have come to the end of the church year today, the end of the church year. And despite what we know to be the end of the story of Jesus, that best of all news we call Easter Resurrection, the year ends here with Jesus on a cross. Not in resurrection, but with death. How is that hope? When we traveled across Spain this summer, walking those last 72 miles to the cathedral in Santiago, up one long hill and down the next. We stopped in every church along the way, and Amy began to notice and to comment all these crucifixes, these bloody images. Don't they know Jesus isn't there anymore? Haven't they heard of the resurrection? Well, yes, our Roman Catholic friends have heard of resurrection. But the symbol of the crucifix, while often gratuitously gory, reminds us death is the great common denominator. Death is the only thing every single human being has in common. In fact, we find solidarity not only with every person who has or who will ever live, but in death we find kinship with all living things plants and animals. My late friend, Dr. Ken Godwin, was a thoroughgoing skeptic, probably because his academic pedigree had made him a keen observer of life. He was raised by this church and was committed to paying forward that impact until the day he died, but his intellectual pursuits had made him agnostic about spiritual things. God, well, maybe he would say, but you know, how can you know? The Ken's love of science had put him in touch with Hegel's dialectic method of historical and philosophical progress. I'm sure you remember this from your college studies. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. In other words, question everything. If it's true, it will stand until it doesn't. And central to Ken's skepticism about a good God in the bad world is, well, the bad world. He shared this with a lot of skeptics. How could a good God allow all this death? Hundreds of thousands of years of natural history, just a story of death. Nature, red in tooth and claw, Ken would quote for me. The title of Elizabeth Johnson's powerful book, Ask the Beast, is taken from the book of Job. Ask the Beast, and they will teach you. I meant to bring that book in the sanctuary today. Someone in this congregation gave it to me, and I'm sorry to say I couldn't read your name. I have not been able to thank you. If you gave me Elizabeth Johnson's book, Ask the Beast, please let me know so I can thank you. It's a powerful, wonderful book. Her fascinating pairing of Darwinian evolution with the Nicene Creed takes Ken Godwin's skepticism head on. The chapter entitled, All Creation Groaning, makes the case that death is not a contradiction of good, a negation of God, but its very opposite. 
As Darwin had shown, the beautiful process of evolution depends on death, the mechanism that fine-tunes all evolutionary progress. Johnson says, so too in death we find God. God with us at the moment of our only common experience with all life. If Jesus is indeed the self-expression of God in human person, then the tragedy of his actual human life, which is his death, can be seen as a drawing back of the curtain to unveil a God suffering in and with the sufferings of created humanity and those of all creation. Now we need to think carefully, talk carefully about the death of Jesus, what it means and what it should not mean, but understood correctly. Even from the skeptical perspective of evolutionary biology, in the death of Jesus, we can find the heart of God living and dying with us. God with us at the moment of the existential crisis that faces every living thing. So the heart of Jesus' powerful ethic is that of death, of sacrifice, of sacrificial love. She who seeks to save her life will lose it. Only the one who is willing to give his life will find it. Or as St. Francis said it in his beautiful prayer, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And he was not talking of the next world only. The postlude to our story the appendix, the sequel, if you will, is resurrection. In the Christian calendar, that just brings us back to Advent, the coming of new life all over again. But the end of the story, the end of every true story is death. And that's just life. Doesn't have to be bad news. May it be so. Amen. And so we come to the last Sunday of the liturgical year. It is called Christ the King Sunday. We're going to talk about kings and kingdoms. And so we find ourselves with this odd pairing as we head into Thanksgiving and get ready for baby Jesus to be born. We're going to end the year with this. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching, and the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You have heard the ancient story. Happy New Year's Eve, y'all. That's what today is for the church. As the liturgical year goes, we are at the end, waiting for the new year of Advent that begins one week from today. See, you thought you had one more month ahead of you before you had to assess your last year and make some new resolutions or intentions, as people like to call them, for the year ahead. Nope. Today's the day. It's New Year's Eve. And just as we were getting, are getting ready for that sweet little baby Jesus to be born, here we are at the crucifixion scene. The blood, the suffering, the pain, the agony. You probably didn't have time to read the front cover of your bulletin today. Don't do it now. Take it home. Read it. Ponder it later. But Melissa Flora Bixler, pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church, has helped me think through this New Year's Eve of the Christian church and what it's all about. It's all about, as she reminds us, the kingdom. Kin. We're all related. The kingdom of God. But today is Christ the King Sunday. And with the recent death of the Queen of England and all the hoopla about the royals in the news from time to time and with the upcoming coronation of King Charles, it's tricky language to talk about kings and kingdoms in church. We pray it every single week, thy kingdom come, and we can't help it. Our minds go to royal processions and pomp and ceremony and crowns and jewels and robes and capes and scepters and money and high and holy and lifted up and exalted and bowed down to, how in the world can we call Christ the King if this is what comes to our mind? Jesus was so clear in all of his analogies. You want to know what the kingdom of heaven is? You want to know what the kingdom of God looks like? Well, Jesus mentions it 37 times, and never once is it royal. He always likens the kingdom to the common stuff and the common people, and he calls all of us commoners to usher in his kingdom. It's usually at the lead up to the crucifixion where we like to tell the story that an innocent man was killed that day. Even the guy on the cross next to Jesus knew that Jesus didn't deserve the same fate as the two that flanked him did. And as jarring as this may sound to you, I think it's true. Jesus was guilty. Yep, I said it. He was guilty of threatening the principalities and powers. He was guilty of undermining the establishment. 
He was guilty of making the rulers of his day feel defensive about their greedy and power-hungry ways. He was guilty of making everyone feel uncomfortable the way he included everyone. He was so guilty. Where we want to believe that Jesus didn't do anything to deserve his punishment, we have to admit that in the three years before his death, he did plenty and he did it intentionally. I read an article about this text and this Christ the King Sunday from a pastor in New Jersey, and she says, Jesus was a man who was intentional in his actions from day one of his ministry, intentional about challenging corruption in authority, intentional about exposing systems that were oppressive. He was intentional in the telling of his stories and parables, knowing full well they would antagonize the religious rulers. He was intentional about healing and casting out demons and raising the dead, picking grain on the Sabbath in view of the Pharisees. He did those things on purpose. He was intentional about turning over the tables at the temple, infuriating the vendors, interrupting business as usual, status quo of religious profit. He was intentional in his message, free the oppressed, give to the poor, include instead of exclude, love instead of judge, knowing full well that his message of shalom building would lead him intentionally to the cross. He would be found guilty he meant for that to happen. Now the people, if you remember, were given an option. You pick one prisoner to set free, and oh, how we all wish that the crowd had chanted, free Jesus, we love him so. Instead, they said, give us Barabbas. So Barabbas was cut loose that day, and Jesus went to the cross. But had it not been that day, he would have been arrested again, sure as the world, and tortured again. If he kept being intentional about his kind of kingdom, there is no doubt he would inevitably, it would inevitably lead to his demise sooner rather than later. And that guy hanging beside him understood what his kingdom was like. He asked to be remembered when you come into your kingdom. But did you catch it? Did you catch how Jesus responded to him? Today, right now, right here, in this moment of suffering and pain, you will be with me in paradise. We like to think that Jesus meant, hey, fella, as soon as we die up here, we're going to heaven, and won't it be great? That's not what he said. Jesus said, right here, today, right now, this is what paradise looks like. This is my kingdom, standing up for what is right no matter the cost, being guilty of including everyone, doing all the things that got me on, on this cross, that's kingdom living. Offering healing and wholeness and welcome and grace and love to the least, the last, the lost, the left out, the excluded. Jesus fully came into his kingdom in that moment 
when the powers that be began to silence him, paradise wasn't what was to come. That was paradise. Every single time you stand up for what is right, every single time you include everyone, every single time you offer healing and wholeness and welcome and grace and love to the last, the least, the lost, the left out, and the excluded, Every time you ensure that the hungry are fed and the naked are clothed and the poor are cared for and the sick are healed, every time you fight racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, and discrimination of any kind, every time you work to make sure that the powers and principalities are overturned to rid the world of corruption and darkness, every time you do these things, I want you to recognize I am living in paradise now. And understand that it is in these moments that you are ushering in the kingdom of God. I have an idea for your New Year's resolution. You're going to love it. I think we should resolve to be found guilty. I want us to be guilty of threatening the principalities and powers. I want us to be guilty of undermining the establishment. I want us to be guilty of making the rulers of our day feel defensive about their greed and their power-hungry ways. I want us to be guilty of making everyone feel uncomfortable by the way we include everyone. I want us to be guilty of taking care of anyone and everyone who cannot take care of themselves without question without judgment for whatever reason just feed them just clothe them just give them the money I want you to be guilty of that intentionally guilty may your new year's resolution be I just want to be so so guilty may it be so Thank you.